Welcome to this bonus episode of the Lady Science Podcast. If you listened to our last regular episode, episode 22, you'll know that we had intended to include an interview with Ingrid Okert, who studies the history of science education on television. Our conversation with Ingrid went way long and there was just too much good stuff to cut. So we're giving you the full interview here. Enjoy. Ingrid Okert is a historian of science, and she's a current postdoctoral fellow at the Science History Institute. She's also on the board of the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. Ingrid, thank you so much for being here. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's just such an honor to be featured on this program. We wanted to talk to you for this episode on the history of science on TV in particular because you're an expert on science and media. So can you kind of tell us just basically a little bit about your research and your your particular interests as a historian? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm very interested in the histories of science and media. And I feel really lucky to be doing this research at a point where there's a lot of rapid scholarship around these issues. Um, there's a lot of great scholars like Bernie Lightman, who've written about the history of science and uh, books and uh, lectures in the 19th century. And I really see myself in some ways building upon work like his and James Secord's. Um, and so my work looks at the ways that um, people who are scientists work with people who are not scientists and communicate to others about science. Um, and there's many different mediums you see this happening. Um, and But my research specifically is about science on television. Um, and I'm definitely one of those people who grew up with a lot of science on TV. And that definitely goes from like, you know, shows like, you know, Bill Nye, the Science Guy, Magic School Bus. I was a huge fan of Pinky and the Brain, which I would argue in some <laughs> ways counts as sort of this, uh, you know, science on television representation and also X-Files, you know, things like that. And so in my own research, uh, my doctoral research really looked at the ways kind of classic science shows worked and the whole genre of science TV came into being in the United States. Um, I started in 1948 and I went up to 1980. Um, but in sort of the work that I'm doing as a postdoctoral fellow, I'm even looking at ways that shows that are about like science fiction, like Star Trek, are very much the result of real collaborations between scientists and non-scientists. <laughs> it's it, it basically means I'm a giant nerd, and this is something I've known for a long time. And this is the great thing about working at a place like the Science History Institute is I'm there with lots of other people who appreciate and tolerate my nerdiness. <laughs> And hey, you figured out how to make a profession out of being a nerd and studying fellow nerds, which is yeah, great. Definitely. Totally. Right. It's, I think the best thing is when you find letters where people are nerding out about how awesome each other's work is. Right. You know, <laughs> that's, pretty that's cool. always fun. Uh, so to dive into specifically your research and the way you've charted um, uh, science on TV, uh, we're sort of, I feel like, familiar today with scientists who um, make and lead their own TV um, examples like uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy or Neil deGrasse Tyson come to mind. And so they create the shows and they help write them and they host them and they're really the central figure of this. Um, but uh, 
as your work has shown, this wasn't always the case. And in the earliest days of science programming on TV, uh, the storytelling was handled by actors and directors and writers, and scientists acted as consultants or demonstrators. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that shift and uh, oh, yeah. what it's meant for the image of scientists? Well, this is something that really interests me because we're in a period right now where there's a, there's interest again in the ways that um, scientists can learn from non-communicators, well, from communicators, non-specific scientists. Um, like, are you guys familiar with the Alan Alda Institute? Yes. The Alan Alda Center. Yeah. So they yeah. just ce celebrated their 10-year anniversary, which is super cool, right? Where you have an actor, Alan Alda, who is, um, you know, basically teaching people that um, improv can help scientists feel like they form a positive um, connections with the general public. But one of the things that I was really interested to find out was that in the late 1940s, this is something that scientists were al already doing. Um, and rather people who were actors and um, creative types, as you were mentioning, Rebecca, they were really at the forefront. Um, the And so like the first, for the first two big TV shows about science on television, um, the Johns Hopkins Science Review and Watch Mr. Wizard. They're two shows that are really dreamed up by people with um, who have basically their expertise in the world of uh, broadcasting in the world of um, uh, like basically theatrical production. Um, my favorite person is Lynn Poole, was the, who was the guy who started the Johns Hopkins Science Review. And he started off as a modern dancer, dancing with the Martha Graham Company. Um, and for most of his 20s, he was touring Europe. And then when he sort of decided to set, settle down and figure out what he actually wanted to do, he started um, as um, a curator over at a art gallery in Baltimore. And he had uh, married uh, uh, someone by that point, uh, Gray Johnson, who was a who had been a Johns Hopkins student. And so I think that was part of the reason they went back to Baltimore. And he was when he was hired by the university um, in the late 1940s. He had experience, again, as an art curator, as a modern dancer. He'd been a Broadway producer. Um, he, so he, he basically did a lot of art stuff. And the um, university asked him to um, create a whole new form of public relations. And he thought, oh, TV would be great. And so <laughs> he jumped into television in the way that a lot of us, um, again, I think about sort of podcasting and stuff, a lot of us learn this technology just by diving in. And so he spent a year at a local television um, studio in Baltimore. And a year later, he said, OK, I can do a TV show now. I know how to do this. Well, of course <laughs> I do. Um, sure. And so but for so for him, he really um, I, I know how he thinks about the relationships, particularly between non-scientists and scientists, because he wrote a book about it um, called Science via Television. And it's one of the only books, certainly the first book I know um, of in the United States to talk about the, um, how to broadcast science on TV specifically. Um, it might be one of the only ones um, and certainly one of the only ones until the 1980s. And so he he had sort of a curious relationship with scientists. He really did think about them as consultants and people who were in the arts worlds as the experts. Um, he talks about the ways that if you're, you know, working with a scientist on a show, you need to tell them exactly how to behave on a show. You need to tell them what to wear because scientists have no sense of taste. So they're going to wear like, you know, terrible suits. And you need to tell them how to act because scientists don't know how to act for a camera. He is, right. what he says, which is interesting, is that he differentiates the type of television 
um, performance that you do from the type of lecture style that a professor would know how to do. And he says that they're different things. Um, and in terms of um, the history of broadcasting, this is kind of actually significant because there are scientists uh, around the country in the late 1940s, early 1950s, who are very interested in um, science, in presenting their science on television. Mm -hmm. But they present it usually as this very static, like one guy, one camera, you know, chalkboard, voila, right? But Lynn Poole says, no, 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 we actually need to create a visually interesting story. And the scientist is at the center of that story. Um, and they don't, and they, and they don't know it and they have no idea how to do it. Um, not surprisingly, there was like a Time Magazine article written at the same time, which, you know, basically sort of said, yeah, scientists don't like going on the show because they don't feel like they're respected. And again, there is a lot of tension because of this in the early years, right? Scientists actually, you know, they, they know what they know and they want to be, um, of course, they want to be equal partners in this. Um, but folks in television at the beginning are certainly very reticent. Um, part of this, to be fair, is because of the quality of live television in this period, right? Um, and so um, shows like the Johns Hopkins Science Review and uh, Watch Mr. Wizard are um, shot uh, live and then they're, they're sent, distributed around the nation on these things called kinescopes. But again, in order to really act um, and literally act um, for a 1950s audience on TV, you have to be able to have like lightning quick reflexes. And you have a lot of limitations. Um, and so, yeah. And so that's a part of the reason, again, live television, certainly live science TV is um, really formulated and dreamed up by these people whose backgrounds are from uh, from the world of theater. Um, another one of these, I mean, again, it changes once you can get um, different forms kind of are different. Like there are shows that are not done live that are taped and they're edited substantially. Um, I'm thinking like the shows from the late 50s are a good example of this. Um, like any of the Walt Disney um, specials that, like that he did on Space Flight or my favorite, which is called Our Friend the Atom, which comes out in 1957, uh, where Disney claims to have a whole science department and he doesn't. <laughs> But again, it's this whole thing where it's like we it's, it's 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 this kind of I love this. It's this imaginarium where, again, you're trying to imagine, well, how do scientists and non-scientists work together to craft this message? Um, and uh, and again, you get some crazy visuals in the 1950s. Like you get that's when you, that's when you get the image specifically in our friend, the atom of the genie, the nuclear genie that comes out of the bottle. And the genie is this metaphor for the potential of, or the threat of atomic energy. Um, and so again, so basically through the fifties, you have this, this sort of particular, um, kind of structure and organization where people who are coming up with the programs in general are folks who are, who've got a really strong background in the arts. They're well-connected in Hollywood, um, or New York. Again, there's a pretty strong regional divide, um, which I would argue still exists. I would be happy to talk about that, um, <laughs> because it's something I'm really interested in seeing, um, but uh, they basically, yeah, so you basically have this very strong, you know, um, sense that the arts are sort of the way to understand science. But this starts to change by the mid-60s. Um, and um, there are different historians who have looked at this as well. Um, David Kaiser's um, book, How the Hippies Saved Physics, is really interesting because in some ways it taps into this, right? By the mid-60s. Um, there's a whole different generation of younger um, graduate students who start getting involved 
And I would argue that graduate students are always the ones who are at the forefront of these revolutionary events, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they're the ones who say, hey, we can actually, you know, we could do shows. You know, yeah. I mean, we could actually, we're, we're interesting. We should be doing more lectures. Um, and they're, part of this is that the, the people who, who are very active in science, and certainly in science communication in the 1960s, do so um, the scientists are very much, um, they're very much struck by this feeling of their own, it's not morality, but it's their own involvement in movements, um, mm -hmm. that end up leading to, um, the creation of weapons, right? And certainly in the 1960s, people are very much focused on Vietnam. And so one interesting thing in terms of science communication that happens is that by the late 1960s, you have the um, the growth of movements like Science for the People. And it's very much science and society driven. Um, it's not about education per se, but again, it's about trying to understand the ways that science and society work together. And that's when you get a lot of scientists who want to get involved mm -hmm. in more of a way than just being the scientist on tap. They really want to start writing the scripts and um, being an active presence. And that's so in the 1970s, then the NSF actually, um, the National Science Foundation and the AAAS start sponsoring programs that encourage science journalism and science programs. Um, and then uh, that's when you get scientists that start getting involved in programs and you get shows like 321 Contact and Nova and Cosmos. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, and then, and then sort of what I would argue is once you get into Cosmos, which is when Carl Sagan, who's this amazing uh, planetary scientist, he's the very first scientist to really lead the, lead the production of his own program. He's the one who really starts making it okay for scientists to really be at the, um, the forefront of these programs. So, and then that's kind of what we go into the modern era where you have scientists who are really leading in, and in charge, more or less. Yeah. That's a very long-winded, terrible explanation. <laughs> um, no, it's it, it's interesting, though. The um, the idea of, like, the 60s as is comes back to being this turning moment. Like, it's it's almost... It's a cliche, but, but it kind of... But it makes sense. Everyone's rethinking the way that these structures should work. Um, and so are scientists on this level. And again, what I argue... Um, what I've been doing research on this year, um, and I'd like to argue, is that Star Trek is a turning point. Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. it's one of those... I could joke about it, but actually... Um, because between 1964 and 1974, um, there are no regularly aired um, shows on about science on um, nationally broadcast channels. Um, there's nothing. You have, like, mm -hmm. specials like Jacques Cousteau. You have the National Geographic specials. You have Wild Kingdom, if you count that. But you don't have something where, like, chemistry, physics is regularly aired. Um, except, again, if you're thinking about mm -hmm. science fiction. And that's when Star Trek is an interesting entity. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, I, I, again, I can monologue. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of, one of the other sort of shifts that you describe in this sort of changing history of science on television is kind of what is the sh what is the shape of the science content that's being presented I guess so you talk about this um, sort of 20 early 20th century idea of like everyday science which is kind of explaining to people 
how science operates in their everyday life. Like it might be in the appliances in your house or, you know, the train you take to work or whatever. And um, you talk about how in the 1950s, in the sort of early days of science on TV, that women were actually like the main or one of the main sort of audiences for these kind of everyday science shows. Um, And then there's this sort of shift later, women, you know, sporadically and not as much as men, obviously, like sort of appear as, as scientists and hosts later on in that history. But can you just talk a little bit about this, um, this kind of shift from educating viewers about the sort of commercial and practical benefits of science to like scientific, like teaching them about thinking like a scientist and kind of how it seems to me that there's kind of a little bit of gender is kind of threaded through this shift in a way. Yeah, I think so. Um, so yeah, I mean, and again, it's something where, um, it, so if we think about the viewership of the 1950s, right, we think about, well, what do you guys think about in terms of the audience? If I, if I say, you know, who's watching TV (laughs) in the 1950s, what would you guys say? Yeah. I mean, like during the day, (laughs) women who are at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I met, yeah, like that and kids. Yeah. I think exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, you guys, so yeah, guys, you guys are historians, you know, you know this. (laughs) Um, and, and and so, and so, yeah. So if you think about the audience, it's women at home. Right. And again, not just, you know, women, but women of a certain higher economic class who can afford a television and afford not to work. Um, so they have a certain amount of disposable and discretionary income. And then you have um, young mothers who, again, I, th- I think about young mothers, I think of p- people who are in their early 20s who are at home with children, who are like, you know, the beginning of the baby boom. And so people who are selling television sets um, really want to make sure that they have programs that will interest both of those markets. Hmm. And um, similarly, people who are um, creating, um, you know, who have like products that um, are being manufactured in the 1950s also want to be aiming at those markets. Uh, uh, You know, I know I've seen lots of amazing images at the Science History Institute of like, you know, plastics and, you know, really interesting, you know, uh, picture advertisements of like Tupperware and, you know, and, uh, disposable products that are aimed at that market. And so women in those periods are, uh, they're a big, they're a big group. Um, they're similarly, um, there's an interest by people who are science communicators to reach that market. Um, and there's a great article by a historian named Beth Bluey, um, about how there's actually a rise in popular science paperbacks in this period, Hmm. partially because you have a group of women who might've actually been educated through college. Um, but then of course have, you know, left the world of education to have children and, but they still really want to know, they really want to learn. Um, and so the Johns Hopkins Science Review, the very first science show, is an in- interesting example of this because the um, the extant episodes that remain um, are not heavily focused on what we might think about in terms of being um, 1950s hot button issues. They're not all about physics. In fact, a huge number of those episodes are actually about, again, this concept of everyday science, um, which... Um, I use because 
pretty much people in that period kind of use a, a phrase that's similar. They'll say, oh, this is science of the everyday. We're going to be talking about uh, my favorite episode, actually, is where they talk about how dishwashing liquid works. And I don't know. I didn't know how it worked. And so I was like washing it. And I was like, this is really interesting. Wow. Like if you use like, as you know, if like you use a certain type of hard water versus cold water, like, you know, it'll have a different effect on the, the, the dishes. Um, and so there's a way in which like, so the Johns Hopkins Science Review is produced in a way that it's very, it's very respectful to look at those things. It's not being trivialized. Mm. Right. You're like, they're like, hey, women at home, you want to know how this works. This is great. This is how it works. Um, And um, similarly, um, Don Herbert, who was the creator of Watch Mr. Wizard, also understood this. Um, And his shows, again, were similarly looking at the science of the home and and both TV shows would have viewers write in and say things like, hey, I've learned science from I've learned about the science in my everyday life. Thanks very much. Um, And so, so again, that's, you know, the heavy commercialism of the 1950s um, is a large part of the television viewing audience. Um, And again, a huge part of that is because people are trying to sell televisions. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, and again, if you have this, a TV show that's educational and you're, you know, and you're trying to convince a young family it's it's a good investment, you'll say, hey, you know, Joey and Susie can learn, you know, in the evening when they get home from school. Um, And so, yeah, so there's this way that, in fact, Owning a television set and watching educational TV about science makes you a good mother. And so that's, Hmm. I think, the first um, part of the response to that question of how gender threads in. It makes you a good consumer, yeah, but it especially makes you a good mother because you're training your child for a better future than the one that you had. And, uh, yeah, and they might want to be a tech, you know, Billy could be a doctor and Susie could be a lab tech one day, you know, (laughs) and I I, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, but I will say, I think one thing which was surprising when I was researching these episodes is again, just how, when we have narratives, rightfully, there are narratives of science that are talking about the ways in which, um, science has been exceptionally exclusionary. And I know listening to episodes of this podcast, we've talked, you know, you guys have talked a lot about this. But what's interesting is the world of science broadcasting, I think, and because because it starts in the arts, it's not as exclusionary as you would think. Hmm. Um, there are women, because on all of these shows, um, there are women involved in the production and, and, and women appear on camera in all of these shows from the late 40s to the early 50s. And in fact, um, there is um, a, a program, the only program that has a nationally that is nationally broadcast that has a woman hosting it. And it's the only one that I know of ever, honestly. I mean, you know, um, is this one from the mid 1950s. It runs from 1956 to 1959. Um, it's called discovery and it's hosted by a woman named Mary Leela Grimes and it's done up at WGBH up in Boston. And it is, uh, it's nationally aired and distributed. Um, 
college students use it. Um, elementary school t- teachers use it around the country. And it's about this woman talking about nature. And she talks about sort of the, the science of your backyard and things like that. Um, and I was very shocked when I heard about that initially, because again, it's, it doesn't match the narrative that we think of when we think about women in science in the 50s, except it does, right? Because it's a woman talking about nature. So there is this way in which, again, there are more women present than we would expect, but it's in ways that are very gendered. Mm-hmm. So it is exactly what we would expect. I was just going to say, I feel like that brings us really well to also um, three to one contact. Yeah, it does. Because what's interesting to me is that, again, you have. So, again, most of the ways that women are involved in these programs early on are in ways that are, to be honest, it's if they're married to the guy who's hosting the program. That's usually the way it is. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's something where you have a, you know, um, and again, these are all hetero, these are, you know, uh, heteronormative relationships usually. Um, So, um, you know, yeah, your wife might be helping you in a serious way advertise the program around the country or, you know, or helping you come up with with the designs. Um, But it's not until the 1970s that... um, programs start saying things like, oh, you know, we actually should be considering the ways that, you know, women are actually involved in science. Now, I was Nova is a show, um, Nova is a show that comes, it's right before 321 Contact, and in some ways it's it's the, the first kind of show where they really, um, you know, they really hire women producers to produce things um, expressly. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, and they spotlight women in science, and that's pretty cool. But 321 Contact is a really cool show because it's a show, it's the first science series where the entire staff says, well, we need to think about the ways to bring women into science and to be more inclusive of other people as well from different communities. Um, and it's the it's on, the only program where it's headed by a woman, directed by a woman. <laughs> the research <laughs> staff was largely women. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm glad that you pivoted to that point. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Totally. I, and I, I loved your, um, the chapter from your dissertation about this. And uh, so uh, for listeners, um, one of the interesting things about three to one contact and that leads to this kind of uh, what Ingrid's laying out is that it was a show developed by the children's television workshop, um, which most of us know as the creators of Sesame street. Um, And you see a lot of those kind of progressive ideals that um, we associate with Sesame street and children's television also in three to one contact. Uh, And so uh, yeah, Ingrid, if you, could you describe a little bit about how three to one contact was developed and the concerns uh, and ideas floated by academics, scientists, writers, and educators who participated in shaping the idea of the series and how the show's model for representation of marginalized people um, worked in the context of a science show? Yeah, no, totally. Um, so again, just to, to to start with Sesame Street, which is of course the best place to start. <laughs> Sesame Street is a TV show that is about to celebrate its 50th anniversary this November, and it has um, uh, made a huge impact in the ways that um, people had people think about the relationship between childhood television and education. And uh, there's a really great scholar I wanted to do a shout out to. Um, whose name is Catherine Ostevsky, who's writing um, like one of the one of the big books on um, Sesame Street and television. Mm. Um, 
And so, yeah, so uh, what I would say is that it's, it's interesting things. So if you think about, again, the way television is, um, we know a lot, we have a lot of options, right? We have cable, we have Netflix, and it's really hard to think back to a day um, when in 1969, you had this brand new station and there's only four stations on TV. And so one of these is this station called PBS and that's, it's amazing because it's educational. And um, Sesame Street is one of the first programs on that station and it's a runaway hit because it's aimed at, again, children, which is always a good market for television. Um, and uh, specifically, it's kind of about educating, it's about kind of creating an imagined state where children can, of all, you know, uh, from, from everywhere, uh, from marginalized communities, can be um, included in sort of everyday life. And so it's in 1970, I think it's imagined that, I think it's, I think it's about 80%. Yeah, so in 1970, about 80% of all preschoolers in the United States watched Sesame Street. That's the estimated wow. figure. Yeah, <laughs> so it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. And so, I mean, it's this huge success. And the Children's Television Workshop, which is the group that puts on Sesame Street, um, is led by an amazing visioneer named Joan Gans Cooney, who is a woman who cut her teeth in the 1950s, uh, working against, you know, the sexism in the industry to basically to head one of these large companies um, that produces television um but she does it sort of with an interesting perspective because she's all about creating um situations where people feel um you know really like they can collaborate with each other um and one of the hardest things that i found when i was researching this dissertation actually um was that it was <laughs> everything that's on everything that's basically a ctw as we call or the workshop as we you call um the children's television workshop every memo basically says it's the group that hosts it together it's like it's not like no one claims credit like there's no one person who says i did this they're like well as a group we all did this because again it's all about this message of total equality it's what you would totally expect from the people who create sesame street right it's like, it makes me so happy yes they're completely <laughs> like that and um i was really fortunate to talk to a couple of the young researchers who had been working there at the time and they were like oh, this was such a great place, you know, like we would have lunch together over in Central Park, you know, um, the, the, the workshop is and uh, was uh, still based in a couple of apartment, and that's a couple of office buildings that are directly across the street from Lincoln Center, which is pretty cool. You can still wow. walk in front of Lincoln Center and you look up and you see all these Muppets in the window and it's like, oh yeah, CTW, that's Sesame Street <laughs> right there. Um, and so it was a really, and basically Joan Gans Cooney ran, um, she hired a bunch of um, young people basically in their 20s to staff um, basically the building. And uh, so it was this very kind of, equalized, you know, fun environment. Um, and naturally, um, so they they put together Sesame Street and then there was this great producer named Sam Gibbon who helped put together another show called The Electric Company, uh, which I think viewers might be more familiar with because of the reboot. And uh, 
And then they sort of said, huh, we have a show that's basically about, you know, teaching young children social skills. Uh, we have a show about teaching young kids literacy. Well, what about science literacy? Couldn't we teach that on TV as well? And so um, they basically, the way, that, the way that CTW worked was that if you, they came up with an idea, they would say, let's have a retreat and talk about it. And we'll invite everybody we know to talk about it. So they went out to Long Island and they had a three-day workshop in a mansion and they invited people from Princeton and from Boston, uh, you know, from Harvard. Uh, they, they, they recruited people who were Broadway execs. And they were like, OK, so what do you think? We have this idea. Um, and um, two of the very vocal people who were involved in this uh, workshop were uh, the Morrisons, Philip and uh, Phyllis Morrison, who were very big names at that point in science communication. Uh, Phil Morrison was uh, uh, an outspoken uh, critic of nuclear weapons. He was a uh, he'd been a former student of Oppenheimer's. He uh, hosted a column on Scientific America. Uh, and so, yeah, so he was like, so he was a big name who was there and his wife Phyllis was similarly big as well. They were part of, they were part of a team that had led, um, I think they had led the, um, the, the kind of the first investigations into elementary science in the 1960s. And their whole, their input basically at the conference was, you know, we need to create a show where we can teach teach kids that it's okay to make mistakes in science. If we can basically talk about that, that's what the show should be about because there are tons of opportunities for making mistakes and that's fine. Um, they had, you know, they had also very serious heads of departments. Um, they had, I think the Dean of engineering at Princeton university at the time was there and he was like, no, it's all about teaching the scientific method. And so again, so through discussion, um, there was, there were a lot of different ideas bandied around this particular three day workshop. And then, um, what happened was that, um, then they had, you know, they had all the ideas, they kind of put them together in a manifesto. And then um, the the workshop employees um, basically sent the those ideas to their research staff and said, OK, well, we have some ideas on what we think we want the show to look like. Let's see what kids actually want to watch. And so that's actually one of the most interesting takeaways to me from the show that becomes 321 Contact was that um, they actually, they being the Children's Television Workshop, um, did this historic thing where for the first time in the history of science on television, they directly asked their audience, what do you want to watch? And again, like they've been, <laughs> they've been making shows since the late 1940s on science on TV, and nobody's done that. No one has gone to the audience beforehand to say, so do you like science even? I mean, what do you want to watch? Like, <laughs> which to jump forward is something I think we, t we ask ourselves a lot today. And it's not such a revolutionary idea today at all. But in 1975, it really was. The, what's cool is that they, um, they canvas and they get responses from about, um, about I think it's about 4,000 students who are between the ages of 8 to 12 nationally. And so it's all these different responses. It's a, um, it, basically, the research team is four people, uh, a guy named Keith Milliki, um, and then his three, um, you know, principal investigators, if you will, um, Milton Chen, Hilda Clark, and Barbara Meyerson-Katz. 
And Barbara, who I got to speak with at length um, a couple years ago, absolutely lovely, um, told me that they called themselves the Mod Squad, right? Because there's one woman who's Jewish, <laughs> there's one guy who's Chinese, and then one gal who's African American. And they were like, we're the, you know, we're going to come up with the best show that there is. And so I think, again, you know, again, but that was intentional. They were hired to be in, you know, to kind of to create a show that was going to be inclusive. And the Children's Television Workshop understood that in order to do that, they needed to have a, a room of not just white guys, right? <laughs> so what they find out is interesting, right? So they're asking people in the mid-70s, they're asking kids in the mid-70s, what do you think of science? And um, not surprisingly, um, a lot of girls write back in saying, I don't like science. Science is boring. I like Little House on the Prairie way more like <laughs> but here's actually so they had an interesting um here's so the interesting study that they actually came out with in some ways was they were trying to figure out um a way to create inclusive characters for the show which becomes 321 contact and they understood that they um wanted to have a show that was based in reality mostly um that would show and reflect real kids. So the kids would watch TV and say, hey, that kid's like me. I could be a scientist. That kid's Puerto Rican. I'm Puerto Rican. This is going to be great. And what they found out when they were trying to, like, they did these assessments and they asked kids, you know, who their favorite characters were, specifically on TV shows. And these girls over and over again said that they love Charlie's Angels. <laughs> They, they kept on saying that, and 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 the researchers were so frustrated. They were like, "What is this? <laughs> like, this is? I mean, Charlie, don't these kids? I mean, these kids don't understand. But Charlie's Angels is not meant for nine-year-old girls. It's meant for like teenage boys. I mean, this is this is what's going on. And actually, what I think they observed um, indirectly in this study was what we would later call the Scully effect, right? Yeah, I I when I read this, I thought that that was interesting. Yeah. Um... Because it's it's the idea that well when when girls see representations of women doing cool stuff, uh, they're excited because they don't get to see representations of women doing cool stuff very often. So even if Charlie's Angels were like mo meant to be like these these sexualized superheroes for teenage boys, the fact that they're women who get to kick ass appeals to nine year old girls. <laughs> Exactly. And that's and exactly what they found out. It was it was it was the confidence of these women. That's what the girls responded to. And and years later, again, so the Scully effect is like named after Dana Scully in the X-Files. And it's this whole thing that, you know, girls who grew up watching the X-Files in the 90s end up wanting to become scientists. I agree. I was like, that's kind of where I would have been. You know, <laughs> I think it's a great show. Yeah. I believe in it. But yeah, so, um, but again, the interesting thing is that, so again, in this, this study in the mid-1970s is the first time that we get um, quantifiable data about what kids are watching on TV that's related to science. And uh, all this data is like all compiled together. And um, for the final stage of television production for 321 Contact, which is um, kind of, you know, what we all do today. But again, it was more unusual, especially for a TV show in the 1970s to be given reports and said, OK, here's here are reports. Now make a TV show. And they recruited for the production of the actual content of the series. They recruited scientists to come into rooms with writers and someone told me that they literally didn't let them out, you know, until they came up with a script. Like, they would just lock them in. <laughs> and they were like, 
like, okay, no one gets lunch. <laughs> like, it's summer in New York City. You don't get out, get to come out of the room until it's over. Um, but, I mean, I think that was probably a slight exaggeration. But maybe not. Um, <laughs> the act of collaboration is sometimes driven by food, you know? <laughs> And uh, so in the end, what is also notable about 321 Contact is that the CTW um, actually recruited um, 15 um, scientists from who were, again, from very um, different communities um, to be on their staff. And they were they worked hard. We talk a lot about the ways that um, people who are trying to, um, you know, put together conferences need to be actively recruiting people, right? Who, again, are not just like white men, but three, two, one contact. I mean, they really took it to heart. So CTW, you know, actively sought out um, women, women and men who were um, Latino, Puerto Rican, Asian American, Asian, African American. Um, and I remember reading a letter where they like they couldn't find somebody who was Latina and a, a Latina woman who was an astrophysicist, and they really wanted to find someone. And they were like, "We're just <laughs> we're combing the index. We just can't find any. There's someone who could do it, but she's busy this week. So I mean, what are we going to do?" And I think again, what really impressed me with the the construction of three two one contact is the sincerity to which, in every step of the way, they're committed to diversity, in a way that is. Really, yeah, really is pretty special and pretty unique for um, the mid 1970s. But of course they, but of course they are because it's the same people who put together Sesame Street, right? And the show comes out in 1980. Um, it's one of a bunch of different shows that come out in that year. 1980 is a big year for SciComm, um, and it's uh, and again, it's an interesting show in that it's it's about basically three teenagers who are played by people who are actually in their mid twenties, early thirties, because that's the way it works on TV, and they have adventures about science, and that's kind of the show. So I guess like by way of wrapping up, I kind of want to return to what we talked about at the sort of beginning of our conversation about how the collaboration between people who make TV primarily as their work and people who do science as their work kind of comes together in places like this. And in the case of 321 Contact and the Children's Television Workshop, there was like like a kind of like very specifically sort of negotiated <laughs> kind of collaboration that like, uh, you know, a scientist may say would offer something as an idea for the show and the workshop people would be like, well, that's not going to work for TV or the workshop people would have an idea and scientists would say that's not science. And so there's this, I'm interested in this kind of like this like collaborative writing atmosphere where you say that like the workshop didn't let the scientists like take over stuff, but that it was, you know, like a really good like back and forth about you know, we all have different kinds of expertise here and like, how are we going to kind of create good science television, good science, good television? Totally. Yeah. Um, and again, I think what's interesting is, yeah, I mean, I think, again, the people who were um, on the creative team came up with amazing visuals that they could, you know, for a program like this, right? And they were tasked with coming up with things that were entertaining and also visually just 
wow. And I think the one that I remember reading was like something where they came up with a visual where they were like, well, there are no letters. It's just everything's just bright lights and color. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That was like an acid trip reading that description. (laughs) I was like, you can't show that to kids. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Nope. Exactly. No, that was just, that was nuts. And they had another one where they were like, well, they had one that they were pretty serious about where it was all going to be like this whole, it was all going to be about Greenpeace. It was all going to be like, you know, like this like whale thing where like they have these kids on a boat and they go and, um, you know, they, they're trying to save the whales. And actually that becomes another, that becomes an inspiration, I think, for another series called The Voyage of the Mimi, which is done by huh. one of the same people. Um, but... Um, I think God, I love that these guys are all crazy hippies. They are, they are, and they're again, they're all sincere. You know, I remember um, listening to one of them talking about again. Well, there was one of them, uh, Lloyd Morissette, who was at a conference a few years ago, who was very much involved in Sesame Street, and he was talking about how you know uh, the civil rights era and how you know they really wanted to help inner city kids, and he was literally tearing up as he was talking, and it was like he was like, we just wanted to help children. And he was crying, and we were like, "Oh my God, you started Sesame Street. You did it. Don't worry. Yeah, like everyone thinks you're great. <laughs> right, right. You did. You did more than like most of us ever will. Right. Well, you guys are doing your own part by Lady Science. So, like, props to you. Uh, seriously, though. But um, to 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 return to your question, um, yeah. Again, I think there were there were moments where the scientists would sort of where the scientists would really want a um they the scientists wanted this coherent depiction of the scientific method that was the most important thing to them and and the science people they were working with the communication folks would say no that's really boring we're not going to do it that way (laughs) and so their their compromise was this format where they had it was a daily program it was like a daily science program which is really intense but again kind of what they did for sesame street where they would have like a different principle like they came up with this idea that for kids it would be kind of cool to um have a series of contrasts like you had like a whole week where you look at dark and light and um so one day you're looking at like the stars and you can have an astrophysicist on to t- tell you what the star is on. And the astrophysicist is like someone who is um, Latino. And so he can also talk about the ways that Spanish is a great language and people who speak Spanish can be scientists too. And then the next day, then they'll, they're going to go, the kids will go and meet somebody who designs the sets for a KISS concert because yeah. that's cool, right? <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, so there's this way in which the scientists were definitely, but everything, again, everything is vetted by scientists and every and the scientists are totally on board. So, again, there's this way in which the, the ways that they decided to expose kids to um, the concepts of science actually ended up being much more abstract than the scientists involved would have liked. Hmm. But when these, but they would have particular segments where they would introduce experiments and they would have something that looks very much like what we would think of as traditional science communication. Yeah, so that's what I would say in terms of the ways that the two of them, the, the two sides really work together. And I think my my regret in terms of what they didn't do was that they had an idea in the mid-70s, again, in the era 
of such amazing programming for children, like, and for adults as well, like The Muppet Show. And they seriously considered having a show that was about, was about Muppets, Muppets in space. And it would be about this, like, group of <laughs> alien Muppets who'd go around the galaxy. And I remember reading the script idea for this going, why didn't they do this? I wanted this. Oh, my God. Muppets in Space ends up being a really great movie in the 90s that I love. Yeah, no, but the whole idea was that, again, you would have a space crew and, you know, the crew would go through space. And actually, there was a, there was a version of this where the, 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 the aliens at one point would crash land on Earth and they encountered Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan was the only one who could talk to them because he knows how to talk to aliens. I mean, again, <laughs> I loved, 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 loved the ideas they came it. up for. It's sort of in this during this one very hot summer in New York City, you know. But actually, again, in terms of things that really did have an impact um, in the ways that we wouldn't expect in science communication. Uh, this is why I keep on going back to this tension um, uh, between science and science fiction is that there's this one moment wherein Keith Millikey and like uh, Milton and Barbara are taking a lunch break and they're walking outside. They're, those are the, the content researchers as well. Like they're the, the researchers for the show and they, they're taking a walk outside in Central Park and they're kind of walking around and they must, maybe they're near Columbus Circle and they see a big billboard up. And it's a billboard for a movie called Star Wars. <laughs> and Keith Milky looks at it. He points to it and he says, okay, guys, that's the competition. That's what we're mm. working against. And again, there's a very serious way um, in which <laughs> CTW was very smart. And they, again, they recognize that the ways that Star Wars really impact young viewers um, I highly recommend, um, if you haven't seen it, watching the episode of Sesame Street where C-3PO and R2-D2 visit, you know, because apparently George Lucas was apparently totally into it because he had young kids at the time. And he was like, I love Sesame Street. Sesame Street's the best. Um, yeah, that was actually that was my favorite part of also like going through the, the correspondence for CTW as they were you know, um, talking about, you know, people they could bring in for the show, they would literally just like write to them. And usually the people would write back saying, I love Sesame Street. Let me help. <laughs> yeah. I um, see, like people yeah. even like, I saw something like just this week on Instagram or something where somebody, some people I follow from Texas or something got to meet Elmo or something and like everybody was crying and like just losing their minds like it's still like I can't imagine being asked to be on Sesame Street and saying no like can you know nobody would say no um no and again like one of the highlights dude I I got to go into the archive of Sesame Street right a couple of times. So and that cool. was amazing. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh my God, are they actually here? And like, I can't, I was very lucky. And I had to go view the tapes in one of their viewing rooms, which was just like a giant, like, it was just like a giant computer server room. So it was very cold because, of course, you know, you want to keep things under. And, and, and the very nice archivist I was working with was like, would you like a blanket? And I was like, sure. And so she gave me this giant Elmo blanket. Yes. <laughs> I'm wrapped in an Elmo blanket right now watching Sesame Street. Life goals. I think that's a good place to... (laughs) It's a weird place to Wrap up. It's a weird place, but also good, I think. We started with Sesame Street. We ended with Sesame Street. 
That's going to do it for us today. This episode's music, the PBS Nature theme song, comes courtesy of PBS via Internet Archive. If you have questions or comments about the episode today, you can tweet us at at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. And if you like this episode, be sure that you subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.